that are there to watch them and help them and teach them. They're not just being dismissed to wherever they please. Um, uh, also, I'm just kind of wanted to, Wednesdays are starting to look a little more like Sundays in here. Um, there's people, uh, lots of them, and, and I, I congratulate you for being among those people. Um, uh, on Wednesday nights, in general, we just go through books of the Bible. And so our, our approach for 12 years, pretty much, can you grab that door, um, has been um, Sunday mornings, we go really, really slow through books of the Bible. In 12 years, we've gone through John and most of Hebrews in 12 years. So we go really, really slow. And what that's allowed us to do is go a little bit more quickly on Wednesday nights. And so we started in Genesis, spent a good amount of time in Genesis. Then we moved to Exodus, spent a good amount of time in Exodus. And then when I got to Leviticus, I didn't want to spend as much time in Leviticus because it was hard. And so we moved faster, and we kept that fast pace. And so we went Genesis, Exodus, and we've, we've made, made our way up through the minor, some of the minor prophets um, on Wednesdays. And so that's what we normally do on Wednesday nights is continue to go through books of the Bible in more of an overview fashion um, in hopes that anyone who grows up in this church would have a pretty rounded out view of God's breathed that word. What we're doing this semester is different. From time to time, we'll take a, a few weeks or a month to consider something in particular. And this semester, we're considering the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines. Um, and so it's a little bit different to have an entire semester dedicated to, honestly, something that's a little bit more topical, um, but we're doing it in a way where we're going to the Word, and we're trying to expose what the Word says about the disciplines, and that, that's called exegesis, just exegeting the passage and looking at it particularly. And so we're still using the Word, we're still letting our, our content come from the Word, we're still checking our beliefs and our views with the Word, and so it's still um, a... Uh, expositional, exegetical approach. It's just a little bit different than what we normally do. So as there's new people here every week, I just kind of want y'all to know that's generally how our Wednesday nights go. Um, this week, we're starting the outward disciplines, and in the previous um, six, seven, eight, I don't know, weeks, we, we studied the inward disciplines. So um, let's pray, and then we'll dive right into it. Lord, we come to you now, and we're thankful uh, for a time in the middle of the week to stop down and to open the Word and to consider your design, to consider your purposes for our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray for wisdom and insight tonight um, as I'm teaching something that I have absolutely not even come close to mastering. In fact, if I'm honest in this prayer in front of everybody, I'm teaching something that I really struggle with. And so my hope is that that wouldn't get in the way, but maybe it would promote honesty um, among each of us to really hold up our lives next to the word and consider how we might grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, Lord, we uh, love you. We thank you for um, those who have returned home from Kazakhstan here in the last couple hours and that you gave them safe travels and we look forward to hearing from them. Pray for the kids in their classes tonight that they would um, engage um, uh, your word and be engaged by your word um, with, with honesty and in humility. I pray for the teachers to have insight in how to, how to communicate those things to, to younger um, hearts and younger ears. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We have finished our inward disciplines, and tonight we start the outward disciplines, and then in a couple weeks or so, we'll move to the corporate disciplines. And tonight we're talking about simplicity, and in the fifth and sixth grade class, they're studying the same thing, and to drive the point home, Kate took away all of the chairs and tables to have a simplicity study, and um, you're welcome that I didn't do that in here, because I considered it but the work would be too much, so I didn't do it. Um, can anyone name all the, uh, not any one person, what are the four inward disciplines that we have studied so far? Prayer? Prayer. Meditation? Meditation. Fasting? Fasting? Study. Did you not know study? Did you forget? That's what happens when you're loud on the first three. <laughs> and study. Yeah, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Briefly, what, what did we learn about Meditation. Meditate on the word. It fuels your prayers. It fuels your prayers. Yeah, some of our um, Christian forefathers said our prayers are weak because we don't meditate before them. Yes, it is not Eastern meditation where you empty your mind and focus on the Aum. It is different. You fill your mind and focus on what the Lord would have you focus on. What about prayer? Uh, that's funny. No one, no one said anything. Meditation also is about um, speaking to God. Mm-hmm. And then prayer is speaking to God through conversation. Yes, meditation is largely listening to God and thinking through his word. And then prayer is offering up something to God that's not empty and rambling and pointless and repetitive, but, but powerful. I mean, we learn in prayer that there are some prayer has great power as, as, it's, as it happens from, from a righteous person. And there's things we don't have because we haven't prayed about it. And there's things that we will have in the future because we will pray about it. And so prayer is powerful and, powerful and changes things. And so in order for those prayers to be effective, we have to meditate. What do we learn about fasting? It's not a diet plan. Step one, not a good way to lose weight. Effective way to lose weight, not a good way to lose weight. Yeah, it has a way of bringing impurities of the heart to the surface. It kind of shakes us up. That's, that's what sifting is biblically. When, when Satan asked to sift particular people, it was to shake them up. And in fasting, we sort of are voluntarily shaking ourselves up um, to see what bubbles out. Um, the example that Paul Tripp has is if he has a bottle of water and he shakes the bottle of water, what comes out? And everyone says, water. And you say, why? And he says, because people say, because you shook it. And he says, no, it's because that's what was in the bottle. Water was in the bottle. And so fasting has a way of bringing to the surface things that um, are maybe below that we haven't paid attention to adequately. Um, A lot of times I have found that um, when I have done it, um, uh, anger seems to boil up. It's one of those, like, I get hungry and then I get very angry. And so some people get sad, I get angry. Um, and, and those are things that bubble up. And then you, you tend to those, those hard issues as you see them. Um, what about study? What did we learn about study? Feel free to use your notes from previous weeks. Yes, study before you meditate. Yes, we have to have some input of the word, and then we meditate on that, and then we pray. What else do we learn about study? Take your, time. Take your time. 
yeah, this is, these are disciplines because they take time. And <laughs> the thing I'm encouraged about in looking at simplicity tonight is, is, is it reminds us of, of the fact that what we're talking about is a lifestyle for, for the follower of God. It'd be very easy to get overwhelmed as we're studying the disciplines being like, okay, hold on. I have a hard enough time praying, and you're telling me that in order to pray well, i got to meditate more. So if I'm going to pray this much, I need to meditate this much. And you're also telling me that in order to meditate this much, I really need to have some study in front of the meditation so I'm not just meditating on whatever I want to meditate on, but it's something from the Word. So now i got to study, and now i got to meditate, and now i got to pray, and I'm supposed to not eat at some point during that because I'm supposed to be fasting. Don't let it overwhelm you. What we're talking about are disciplines that we're trying to put in place as part of a disciplined lifestyle. It's putting ourselves by God's design. Remember, all this that we're talking about is not a checklist. It's the way that Christians live their lives for the glory of God. It's the way we move. It's the way we function in work. It's the way we function in parenting. It's the way we function in our marriage. It's not this checklist. It's not this pharisaical, extra-biblical thing. It's a way of life that, frankly... Our culture that we live in is not real conducive to. I've not been more aware of it than in what we're going to engage tonight with simplicity. I want to confess up front, I'm not good at simplicity. I have not mastered simplicity. As I studied through simplicity, I've been utterly convicted at all of the things in my life that are unnecessary and cumbersome. And so I'm hoping to teach in a very honest way at all times, and I feel like it would be dishonest of me to stand up here and act as though I got this, because I don't. Um, This is very hard, and as I was reading through it, I thought, it was kind of funny, I I have my own tendency to complicate simplicity, go figure. I was like, well, we can't do all this in one night, we're going to have to do like two or three studies, it's just too complicated to do simplicity in one sitting, and so um, I don't want to complicate it, however, um, there's a lot to it. Because we got so much fighting against it, I feel like. And so I really, as we were, as I was looking at how to present this, I was kind of overwhelmed by, I don't think people are going to like this study. I don't, I don't think people are going to walk out of here with a pep in their step really thanking me for much of anything. They'll want to just steer clear of, uh, of, of me. So um, I, I, I'm hoping that really, when I pray for honesty, I really genuinely hope that we can honestly hold ourselves up next to the word and really look at what's going on. Um, one, one guy has said that our, our view of ourselves is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and we need other people to hold up God's word to show us what's really going on. And, and I, I've been kind of shocked at just the stark contrast of God's word to, to my life and to this culture that, that, that we all are part of. So... What comes to your mind when I mention simplicity? Amish. Well, that's the end of the study. Well, that's all we need to know. Go be Amish. No, um, yeah, that comes to my mind too. What else comes to, to mind? Less busy. Less stuff. Prioritizing. Easy. Back to the basics. I repeat everything for the sake of the recording, just so y'all know. If that, if that annoys you, it's like, why is he repeating everything? Like, it's his idea. I'm just trying to make sure the people on the recording get what y'all are saying. Yes. So back to the basics. What was the other one? Hard. So, so it's easy and it's hard. 
It's complicated. The simplicity thing is so complicated. Scary but freeing? Absolutely. Um, it's good to remember from the get-go uh, that the purpose of all of the disciplines is total transformation of the person. We don't come to the disciplines thinking, I might need a little work here and there. The goal of, of studying the disciplines is, is total transformation, is to, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And so with simplicity, um, it's this lifestyle of a, of a disciplined person. And so the definition that I, I want to work from, and this isn't like real official, I just did the study and said, what's a good definition? And this is what I came up with. So um, what we're going to work from is simplicity is seeking first the kingdom of God while holding loosely to the things of earth. earth. Seeking first the things of God while holding loosely to the things of earth. So it's not just about getting rid of your stuff, but that's part of it. It's not just about having less, but that might be part of it. It's not just about it being bad to have too much because sometimes it's not bad to have a lot, but your attitude in it and where you're putting your hope makes all the difference in the world. And so I don't want to oversimplify simplicity, but I want us to work from this idea of seeking first the kingdom while holding loosely the things of earth. That kind of gives just a, something to work with and work from tonight. So turn to Ecclesiastes 7.29. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you've ever gone through something in your life where you feel like, what the heck was that? Ecclesiastes is a really great book because um, pretty much that's what happened to him. Um, Ecclesiastes has all sorts of incredible wisdom and things that maybe don't clarify why we're puzzled, but it makes sense of why we're puzzled. Things like God created us to want to know all the details from beginning to end, but God created us so that we couldn't know all the details from the beginning to the end so that we will fear him. Um, there's these insights in Ecclesiastes, and, and one that I want us to consider tonight in regards to simplicity, is found in Ecclesiastes 7, 29. It says this. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Does anybody else's Bible have a different translation? Different word for upright, by chance? Does everyone in this room have an ESV or NAS? <laughs> um, th there are some translations, um, and I'll, I'll be honest, it was harder to find, and in fact, part of tonight's study was I was trying to disprove what this one guy had said because I didn't know if it was a good translation, I was trying to figure out where he went. But instead of saying upright, they'll, put, they'll use the word simple. God made man simple. And we sought out many schemes. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, in this point in the book, is saying that he has thoroughly studied man. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants to dig deep and look at the heart of man. He's almost like a, like a in a sense, almost like a psychologist and wanting to dig and see what's under the surface and see what's going on and figure out what's going on in someone's soul. That's what a psychologist 
that means study of the soul. Um, that's not always what it is now, but that's what it originally meant, study of the soul. And, and he's, he almost sounds like that, where it's like he wants to get it. Why do we do these things? What is the point? Why do we move in this manner? What, how can I make sense of man? How can I group something here to wrap my head around? And he gets to this point here in Ecclesiastes 7 where he's like, I've studied man thoroughly, and I just I don't get it. I am one. I don't get it. He just kind of gets to this point in Ecclesiastes where he's like, I've looked really closely to make sense of it, and you don't make sense of man. He's kind of this arms thrown up. But what he lands on is this. He says, I can't make sense of what man is, and why we do what we do, and how we move what we move. But this I know. God made man upright. and We sought out many schemes. So some use the word simple, in place of upright. Why do you think that is? Righteous. Yeah. Yeah. Why would simple make its way into like upright and righteous? Those make more sense together. Why would simple come in there on some translations? Pure. That's how he intended, he intended us to be. And we screwed it up. That's about right. You, you shared the punchline. We screwed it up. Yeah. I, I think what we're looking at here is, is the reality that our sin complicates the really beautiful simplicity of the way that we were created. The reason I'm okay with that word simplicity being right there in place of upright is because I think they mean the same thing. When you look at this verse... That God made man upright. God made man simple. But they have sought out many schemes. The reason it makes sense is because the opposite of seeking out many schemes is sticking to the program, sticking to what you're taught, what, what the plan was in the first place. There was this way that God created us, and we s- sought out many other possibilities that we thought were, were viable. Um, our sin complicates the simplicity of the way that we were created. And so scripture addresses man's problem in a particular way. And so before we go back to the beginning, I want you to go to Matthew 6. Go to Matthew 6. And we're, we're going to be hitting a handful of different verses here. So get your Bible drillness on and get ready. Matthew 6, 25. Um, I want you to pay attention to the details, because when I'm done reading this, I'm going to ask you, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom? Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span, a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Yeah, in any setting, instead of thinking about what do I want to do, we, ha- we, we yield to what does God want me to do? What would you say, Gary? Simplicity. Simplicity, yeah. What else do we know about seeking the kingdom from that verse, what it means? Yeah, if we seek the kingdom, we'll have the things that we were worrying about when we weren't seeking the kingdom. Um, kingdom-related things cannot become secondary. And this is where it gets to the uncomfortable part. Kingdom-related things cannot become secondary. In what areas do kingdom-related things sometimes become, become secondary in, this, in these verses that we just shared? When did the kingdom-related things become secondary? In, in what areas? Food, shelter, money, and what was the other one? clothes. Oh, how times have changed, right? (laughs) Seriously, food, shelter, clothes, and money. Do y'all spend any time worrying about such things as that? Um, What about in your own experience? What are the, the areas where maybe kingdom matters become secondary in your own experiences? In observing other people, of course. Traffic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all things kingdom related are out the window. Those left lane drivers. Yeah. You know it's only for passing. Anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the other thing that I added to mine. I made my list and I said uh, food, drink, clothes, uh, money, and then I, I put work and relationships. Are there any other areas that y'all would want to include for your fellow brothers and sisters to know that keep an eye out? Children? Children? Yeah. Facebook. Facebook. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I'll just say it. Some of us don't need to be on Facebook because we're entirely too idolatrous and covetous. It just fuels the monster. If you use it as a means to pray for people through their different trials and tribulations, kudos to you. But some of us need to just drop it like a bad habit. Yeah. Um, so seeking first the kingdom, what I want us to see is this. Um, it, it has all these things that we can worry about. And then it says seek first the kingdom, and then these things will be added to you. And what we have to see in this verse is that the person who does not seek the kingdom first does not seek the kingdom at all. We don't have an option of seeking it second or third. The person who doesn't seek the kingdom first doesn't really seek the kingdom at all. Worthy as all other concerns may be, the moment that those things become the focus of our efforts, they become idolatry. That's the heart of these things. James says, why do you have these quarrels and these divisions among you? Is it not because you have things that you want and you, and you, you hurt others and you make decisions that are selfish to take those things and to get your way? An idol is anything that takes precedent over God. So the crazy thing about us human beings is we can make an idol out of anything. We often make idols out of good things. You, you could really be passionate about prayer. Oh, love praying. 
Praying is so good. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe there's things we don't have if we won't pray, and praying is so good. And we can elevate prayer to this level where we're not actually seeking the kingdom in it. We're seeking the prayerfulness of prayer in it. And we make an idol out of something as good as prayer. We can do it with with benevolence and helping people, the poor, the homeless, those who need help. That's a good thing, to spend and be spent gladly, to not become weary in doing good, um, to, to look for opportunities to serve. But you can make serving the poor an idol when it becomes, it's no longer kingdom oriented. Anything can become an idol when it's not kingdom oriented. You seek the kingdom first and you move in the other things according to the movement of God's kingdom. Nothing must come before the kingdom of God, including a desire for a simple lifestyle. We're going expl- to see things this week and next in a simple lifestyle where it's like, oh, to be free. Oh my goodness, that, that sounds great. I, I can breathe a little better just thinking about it. But the simple lifestyle cannot become more important than the kingdom of God. It only finds its place within it. Simplicity itself becomes idolatry when it takes precedence over seeking the kingdom. Seeking first God's kingdom and the righteousness, both personal and social, of that kingdom is the only thing that can be central in the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Do not abandon the kingdom in pursuit of any of the disciplines. You can become way more involved in meditation and prayer and study. It must be kingdom-oriented. The first time this ever fell apart, we have a record of it. Turn to Genesis 1. Look over at Genesis 3. I wanted to read all three chapters, but time doesn't permit Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit that God said not to eat of, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, as opposed to just good. That's the problem here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Which is stupid. Withering fig leaves are not good clothes. They dry up and crumble. You can't cover yourself well with them. Sin makes you stupid. That's the point. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Busted. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman... You gave to me uh, uh, to be with me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord doesn't give the serpent any room for his excuses. But man has sought out many schemes. In this moment in human history, Adam and Eve ceased from first seeking God's kingdom to seeking their own desires. At the root of duplicity is idolatry, duplicity being the opposite of simplicity. 
And as we see them turn from seeking God's kingdom to seeking their own desires, what are the sorts of things that went with this first deviation from the kingdom? How did that go? What, what, are, what are the things that went along with it? Work? Yeah, there was work before it, but the work after it was much harder. What else went along with it? Yeah. There was a loss of innocence. Pain. You better believe it. What else? Shame, consequences of what? Separation from God. When you willingly step away from kingdom movement, you're willingly stepping away from the God of that kingdom. That's separation from God. Were they happy after they got the knowledge of good and evil? No, they were miserable. What were they doing? They were hiding because of shame. There's depression, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's confusion, there's bitterness, there's blame shifting, there's hiding from God. These are the kind of things that go along with the very first deviation from the kingdom of God. Had they sought first the kingdom of God, they wouldn't have, have made the decision that they made. And interestingly enough, it was over food, right? The first deviation from the kingdom of God was over what they were allowed to eat or not allowed to eat. Now, there was a lot that went along with that food, but I just find it interesting that over in in the Gospels where Jesus is talking, he says, don't worry about food, Adam and Eve. Don't worry about food. And then just shortly thereafter, he says, don't worry about clothes. I'll clothe you because your fig leaf plant is lame. So I'll take some skins from an animal and I'll clothe you. I mean, it's interesting the the connection there between food and, and clothing. So fear and anxiety and confusion, bitterness, blame shifting, all these things came with it. So what I want us to see is that in a way, Genesis 1 and 2, the, the creation accounts, represent the first part of Ecclesiastes 7.29. God made man upright. There was no problem with man when God put him where he put him to do the work he called him to do and gave him the food that he was allowed to eat. God made man upright. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And interestingly, the second part of verse 29 is it begins for all of us in Genesis 3 that they have sought out many schemes. Taking that fruit and eating it was the beginning of seeking out many schemes. Why do we bring all this up? Well, because we have to understand that it's, it's Christ who redeems us from such movement. We don't do this on our own. But we need to see that the sin that we have in our own lives of turning from God was the same sin that was evident with Adam and Eve there in the garden. I've heard people talk about how, you know, dang Adam and Eve blasted them for messing up and screwing it up for all of us. And I, I remember hearing one, hearing one real honest pastor say, if it would have made it to me, I would have been the one to, to mess this whole thing up. There's just this honesty. They're saying, I, we do the same thing, and the same effect is what takes place. Seeking out many schemes. Foster, in his book on spiritual discipline, says, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into insane attachment to things insane attachment to things. It's time to awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society means to be sick. Covetousness we call ambition. Hoarding we call prudence. Greed we call industry. So what I want you to ask yourself, and don't answer these questions out loud, it'd be very embarrassing. Ask to yourself, really process, be honest, Think of the, take, take a moment of introspection. 
what would make you feel less secure if it was taken from you? Is there anything that you're putting above God's kingdom? What would make you feel less secure if it was taken from you? What about your money? Would you lose all sense of security if someone broke into your car or your house? I remember the first time someone broke into my car. I felt so violated. I was like a teenager. And I was just like, oh, the audacity. I left a hammer in the back of my truck. They just picked up the hammer and broke my window and took my radio. It's like, so part of it's my fault. But I remember feeling just, oh, man, how can I be so I'm going to lock my car from here on out. I'll never leave it unlocked, and I sure won't leave the hammer in the back. So what about your health? Is your entire sense of security gone if, if your health is taken from you? We're in Texas. What about your guns? Half the room's packing. I'm aware of that. But could, would you lose your sense of security if, if you couldn't? Would it un, unhinge you? Are there areas where you, where you call it ambition when it's really just, just covetousness? I work hard. I make good money. I'm, I'm just an ambitious person. I'm a, I'm a winner. <laughs> Think about that commercial. Oh, sprinkles are for winners. Um, uh, I'm a winner. I, I'm a go-getter. I'm a type whatever personality. Are, is there any area where you're calling it ambition and it's really just covetousness? Is your house cluttered because you call it prudence, ingenuity, stewardship, when it's really just, just hoarding because the stuff makes you feel secure? Do you have any business practices that are hailed as industrious and you, maybe you're even rewarded for it um, when in fact you're, you're just guilty of old-fashioned greed? I think that there are many areas where we've been conformed to a sick society. And the only way to see the sickness is to look through the lens of Scripture. You know, we, we've talked about the difference between viewing truth through the lens of our experience or viewing truth through the lens of Scripture. What, what, are, we, what are we saying and identifying with as, as true? And I, I think the only way that we're going to see some of the sickness that we've conformed to is really by taking a hard look at the Scripture. And so I want to, um, I want to hit a couple of pieces of Scripture. And as we read through them, I'm going to ask some reflective questions. And I really just want you to be honest with yourself. So turn over to Leviticus 25. Right, right before Numbers, right after Exodus. Leviticus 25 has this wacky celebration called the Year of Jubilee. A guy named God ordained it. So though it's going to sound bizarre, we need not dismiss it. Verse 13 and 25, in referring to the Year of Jubilee... We'll just start in 13. And I just, I'm just going to read some, and I just want you all to think as I'm reading, does this sound crazy? Because that's what I think when I read it. Like, who would do, why would you even do that? And just remember, um, this is God's words. Verse 13 of Leviticus 25. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. Just, just first, this first verse, 
insinuates that for some reason you left your property. And because of the year of Jubilee, now you get to return to your property. What normally happens when we leave our property? Someone else is moving in, right? It's no different here. So let's keep looking. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. Okay, so what does it mean to not wrong one another? Let's keep reading. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of year, years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it's the number of crops that he's selling to you. Not equity, not negative equity, not interest. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you'll dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit. You'll eat your fill, and you will dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in this seventh year, the year of Jubilee, if we can't sow or gather our crop? What do we do then? I mean, you see this problem that they're saying, oh, okay, well, um, so we don't eat in the seventh year, but so we're not going to take the crop, we're not going to sow the seed that year either, that's going to be a problem this year and the next year, and in fact, a little bit at the one after that. And so God, God understands um, agriculture and horticulture and, and all sorts of things related to the creation that he spoke into existence, and so he addresses this problem, and he says, um, they say, what shall we do? And he says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. To be clear, God's saying, um, I understand your concern. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make what you do in one year good for three. Do you trust me? I'll command my blessing. And then it says, when you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat of the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity the land is mine. Does anyone know what that means? Without change. Yeah. Perpetuity means this is mine now. Period. He's saying there's no room for this is mine now. Period. Because I have a better plan. The land you shall, shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Remember, we're talking about the moment in our history where they were brought out of Egypt by the, the amazing work of God's hand via the plagues, humbling Pharaoh, drawing out a people on his own. It's our Christian story. He's drawing you out from the world, calling you his own, and they've drawn him, he's drawn them out, and he's telling them, this is how you live now. You're strangers. You're sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. What does that mean? If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his, what his brother sold. And if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. That means if you bought that guy's property, you would gladly welcome him back when he has the money to give you exactly what you paid for it. Because it's not yours. And because it's not his. I mean, this is very American. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, 
if he doesn't have the ability to recover it, look what happens next. Then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer. You bought it and you get to keep it until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. What? <laughs> so he just gets to keep it until that year of Jubilee, which is how many years? Once every how many years? So when you buy property, you get to keep it for how long? Even if you paid a lot for it, you get to keep it for how long? Why? Because it's God's. Okay. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year for its sale. Uh, for a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. Imagine if we wrote that into our clauses when we bought a house. If I change my mind in 11 months, I want it back. Okay, well, I'll sign on the dotted line. Um, it, if it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house is wall, in a walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer. It's different depending on where the house is. Throughout its generations, it shall not be released even in the Jubilee, but the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land because, well, to work the field, you have to be able to have a house to live in. It doesn't make sense to separate them because we're just working on God's common sense here. But the houses of the village shall have no, have no wall around. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the year of Jubilee. It goes on and on, talking about if someone's poor, you can help them out. You can even hire them, but don't you treat them like a slave. Um, the year of Jubilee is bizarre if we look through the lens of our experience. It's bizarre if we look through the lens of the American economy. Foster states, the biblical injunctions against exploitation of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and straightforward. Accumulation of wealth, isn't that the whole reason our country was established? Here, the Old Testament takes exception to the popular notion. Listen to this. This, this is a funny sentence. The Old Testament takes exception to the popular notion of an absolute right to private property. We don't even have a parking place for that thought because it's not a notion to us. An absolute right to private property is an absolute right to private property, right? No, it's a popular notion to us. In light of redemptive history, the absolute right to private property is a popular notion. This messes with the way we see things. And why? What's the point of all this? Look back at verse 23. Because the earth belongs to God, and therefore you can't hold on to it perpetually. So is there anyone sitting there in their chair thinking, oh, I'm cringing. I got some land that I own. Should I get all jubilee on this thing? <laughs> Figure out who owned this before me? I, I want you all to see this. This does not mean that you cannot be a Christian and own private property. <laughs> be it land or a car or something of value. However, if you put your hope in that, you're building your own kingdom on stolen land. If you put your hope in those things, you're building your kingdom with stolen property. If you put your hope in finally getting to pay off your house, yes, you're putting your hope in stolen property. We don't put our hope in such things. We seek first the kingdom. And we view all of what we have as belonging to God. And we view God's warning in the beginning of calling out his people as very real. Seeing it as his. Seeing this world as his. So one of us may argue, 
Okay, well, that's Leviticus, dude. Seriously? That's where you're taking us for simplicity is Leviticus? And I get it. I, I, I wish it stopped there, but it doesn't. So I will share with you some other verses. Psalm 62.10. You don't have to turn to these verses. I'm going to blow through them. Psalm 62.10 states that if riches increase, which means sometimes riches increase, and it's totally a good thing, make sure you don't put your hope in them. The flip side of that could say when your riches decrease, it doesn't mean you're hopeless. When you run out of money, do work. Be a good steward. Don't spend it on dumb stuff. But it doesn't mean you're hopeless. If I'm not supposed to set my hope on them when they increase, when they decrease, that doesn't mean my hope is gone because my hope was never in them in the first place. Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 says, He who trusts in his riches will wither. Luke, oh, now we're getting into the New Testament. Look out. Luke, in Luke 16, 13, um, Jesus straight up declares war on materialism. Did you know that's your king who offers you to follow him in his kingdom? Declares war on materialism. War. You cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. That means if you love money, who do you hate? God. There's no other, there's not like, well, I can love money and give like maybe 11 or 12% of it away instead of 10, and I'll prove through the giving of it away that I can love that money and then love God. There's a guy in Dallas who has a statue that he made with all his stupid money of a camel going through the eye of a needle. See, look what I did, because he loves his money. Uh, yeah, it's a small camel and a big needle, in, in case y'all are wondering, needle, big he made it happen, though, because he got the money. You will always love one and hate the other. He depicts the difficulty of wealth with the illustration of the camel in the eye of the needle. And in Matthew 6, 21, he warns us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Now, turn to Luke 12. Go ahead and turn to this one. This is brutal. Luke 12. 13, says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell, me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, <laughs> man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? This is Jesus. Uh, and he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Be on guard. Take care and be on guard. Double, double emphasis there against all, all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he sought, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Many of us have probably been in that place of saying, of needing to upgrade something. It's not bad. 
It may not be a bigger barn, but it may be a bigger house. It may be a bigger car. But what we have to keep into perspective is what's said here is that we're not laying up these things as treasures. These aren't little accolades that we're rewarding ourselves with as we go. The one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. You can't be both. It's saying it again. You can't be both. You can't lay up treasure for yourself and be rich toward God. And look at verse 32 in the same chapter. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you what you're supposed to be seeking. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So look at, look at how he tells us to treat money in those verses. And now I'll just turn back in closing to Luke 6. Look at 27. This will be our last verse of the night. Luke 6, 27. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What's your immediate response when you see someone begging? Is it get a job? You've been out here for eight hours. You could have done something productive, made some money. When God tells you to give to others, it has very little to do with them. It has everything to do with where your treasure is. You can go to Walmart. You'll see the guy. He's got a dog. My thought is, if you can't feed yourself, you shouldn't take on the responsibility of a dog. That's my first thought when I see that guy. What a jerk. Me, not him, me. God says to give because it doesn't belong to you. What we're seeing here is this radical difference. When someone takes something from you, give them something else. If they beg from you, give them. If they steal from you, give them more. This life of simplicity is so countercultural to what we're used to. But it's beautiful because it's according to God's design. It's before we sought out many schemes. What I think that God wants us to see here is this. God calls all who would follow him to a life of carefree unconcern for possessions. God calls all who would follow him and seek his kingdom to a life of carefree unconcern for possessions. Earlier we saw in John 6 that we're to seek the, first the kingdom of God and these other things will be added to us. And what I want us to know here at the end of the study is it's good to know that God's desire is that we have adequate provision. Don't leave here saying, well, Scott taught that God doesn't want us to have anything. No, in fact, God wants us to have adequate provision. We just sometimes refuse to settle for his definition of adequate. 
Adequate, I'll define adequate. God calls us to, um, to follow, who would follow him to a life of carefree, unconcerned for possessions. Carefree, unconcerned for possessions. Foster notes in his chapter, um, he says, there's misery today from a simple lack of provision. Some people have a lack of provision and there's misery that goes with it. It's very, very real. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have something to drink. He says, there is misery from that, just as there is a misery when people try to make a life out of provision. Are you trying to make a life out of provision? Does the energy of your entire day revolve around making a life out of provision? In what ways are you seeking the kingdom in your secular job? It's probably right that most church people don't have church jobs. So how are you seeking God's kingdom in the work you're doing at your office? Are you making a life out of provision? Simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us. Simplicity is the thing that makes it to where I can enjoy what God has blessed me with without allowing that blessing to destroy my soul. That's, what's, that's what God is getting at in these verses. Foster goes on to say, Simplicity sets us free to receive the provision of God as a gift that's not ours to keep and can be freely shared with others. That's, that's the stance. That's the attitude. That's the movement. That's how we seek the kingdom of God when it comes to possessions. So that's where we're going to pick back up next week. We're going to talk about how we enjoy things the right way. And we're going to talk about some other details in, in, um, in a life of simplicity that's, that's disciplined simplicity. That's where we'll pick up next week. I want to just throw two challenges out at the end. Don't normally throw out challenges, um, but I'm going to. One, three challenges. One, I want you to spend some time thinking about this. Go home and ask your kids, what's most important to mommy and daddy? And then shut your mouth. Just see what they say. My kids are usually brutally honest. What's most important to mommy and daddy? And just see what they say. The other two are throw something away and give something away. It's simple. But I want to do it because I kind of want to talk about it next week. Throw something away and give something away. Don't throw away what you could give away. Well, I'll put that in there. But throw something away and give something away. Um, but Yeah, don't give someone something lame. That's a great point. <laughs> Some things are just trash, not gifts for poor people. So, so that's, that's what we'll end on tonight. If it's trash, it's trash. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for this time tonight. We pray that, um, that we would take what we've heard and not think that we have even begun to live it just because we listened to it. Lord, I need to grow in this area, and I pray that you would lead us all in such a manner. Help us to live lives of simplicity so that we don't get anything in the way of your kingdom. Lord, seeking your kingdom is a privilege of those who are your children who you've redeemed. Help us to not neglect the blessings we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.